Welcome to the final episode of season one of Which Decade, where we announce the results of the Master Scoreboard before we reset the scores for season two and start all over again. These results will be fed into our brand new motherboard. And at the end of season two, we'll be adding the next set of final scores to that motherboard. Yes, there is quite a lot of process involved in this podcast, but who doesn't love a bit of process? You don't have to answer that. My name is Mike Atkinson, and I am joined by my partners in pop, Nick Parkhouse. Hello. And DJ Trev. Hello there. So, off we go with the results of season one, and immediately we hit a tied score for last position. So, to break that tie, I have looked at how these two decades fared against each other in each episode, and it turns out that one decade beat the other six times as opposed to the other decades, four times. So in last position, with four points and losing the tie break, we have... The 2010s! 2010s had two winners, Taylor Swift and Gautier, and it had three losers, Union J, Grayson G. Easy, and Helping Haiti. I'm curious to see which decade this went head to head with in the tie for last place. Um, this is the first decade where I absolutely can say there's stuff that I think was actively crap. And I think that Simon Cowell was involved with most of it. Fortunately, in Got Ya, there's one of the songs that I would put in an all time top 10 of best records ever. And moving forward, I was glad that finally dance music got a couple of shouts in towards the end with two of the best producers in commercial dance, Calvin Harris and Avicii. They don't save the 2020s from being in the negatives column for me when it sort of came out. I went through all of the records that we covered. If there was a song that I disliked, I gave it minus one. If there were songs that I could not remember how they went, I give that minus two because I think it's worse to be forgettable than to just be bad because bad's an opinion. And then there were songs that I think I give one point to were ones that I really like. And then there's songs that got two points, which I think you kind of have to just say are classics. What came out of it was it got minus two overall, the 2010s. There were mainly so many forgettable songs. I think in 50 years time, no one's going to be listening to Raksu or Halsey. But I do think, to balance it out a little bit, Gautier will achieve eternal life. That Gautier song, I think people will be listening to forever. And that's kind of the ultimate aim of pop music, isn't it? Just to, to achieve some kind of longevity for the artist. And I think that does that. So I don't think people are listening to Raksu already. I said about 50 years. I don't think anybody's listening to it now. Um about halfway through the run, I was actually a bit miffed that the 2010s was being quite hard done by because there'd been quite a lot of waste that we'd picked. There's a lot of great stuff in the 2010s, but we seem to have sort of swerved it somehow in favour of quite a lot of um, garbage. But it did recover towards the end. I was thinking about this. Of all these 60 songs that we've had, if you said to me, right, you can only keep one decade and you can never listen to any of the songs from any of those other decades ever again. Even though it wasn't my favourite overall, I would keep the 2010s because if you didn't, I would lose Blank Space. And I think Blank Space is probably the best song that we've covered in this entire run. I um, forgot you, as Trev absolutely rightly says, you'd lose that as well. So from my point of view, I'd keep the 2010s, even though they weren't my kind of average favourite overall, merely because otherwise I think you'd lose those two, which are genuinely brilliant pieces of pop music yeah in terms of forgettability the 2010s has my most forgettable song of the 60 not my most bad and hated but my most forgettable and that is Halsey's Without Me I went through all of these songs again in preparation for this episode and every time Halsey came on A I didn't recognize it from the intro and then there were brief periods I thought oh this might be interesting and then 30 seconds later I drifted off I could probably sing you just about all the other 59. I couldn't sing you that one. I have a problem with the 2010s. The 2010s are why I could never be a contestant on the hit list, because there are vast gaps in my prior knowledge 
about the 2010s. This was the decade where my interest in the charts started to wane and pretty much expire. And I think the dominance of EDM towards the start certainly played its part. But I think also somehow it's to do with the change in the chart rules from June 2014, whereby you could start to include plays from streaming services. And I think that worked to the detriment of the charts, at least temporarily. I mean, one immediate problem is that you'd eliminated the whole concept of a single as a format in its own right in favour of the track. Now, for a while, that meant that the chart would just be periodically flooded out with tracks from one album if that album was a major new release. And that reached a ludicrous peak in March 2017 when Ed Sheeran had nine tracks in the top 10, 16, I think, in the top 20. The, the charts just felt like a joke. The rules were changed to fix that particular problem, but I think other problems remained. There's a fundamental problem with using streaming to work out the charts. Just because you stream a track, it doesn't mean you've actively chosen to listen to it. It could just be included on a playlist which you follow. It doesn't even mean that you like it. I mean, I often try out tracks on Spotify, which I decide I don't like. Sometimes I just let them play because they're not quite bad enough to have me hitting the skip button. And just because you stream a track doesn't even mean that you're listening to it. You might be in another room. You might be playing it in your place of work, a shop or a cafe or a bar. It means nothing. So how does this leave the charts able to continue functioning as an accurate gauge of the nation's favourite tunes? Well, it doesn't. Hit songs have to be on massively popular playlists in the first place in order to be big hits. And they can hang around for the charts for as long as they're kept on those playlists. And to get on some of those big playlists in the first place, they have to fit neatly into predefined genres. So to give a classic example, when Drake's One Dance stayed at number one for 15 weeks in 2016, did that mean the whole country had fallen in love with One Dance by Drake? And of course it didn't. So I drifted away from the charts, and because I drifted away from the charts, I drifted away from pop. So a lot of these 2010 tunes were new to me. The weird thing is, and I can't put my finger on why, but somewhere in the 2020s, the charts have got interesting again, or at least interesting to me. They're more diverse, they're more inventive, almost no tracks to the top 40, which I absolutely have to skip. I actually listened to the top 40 again for pleasure, and I've not done that since 2010. I kind of wish we were doing the 2020s in this podcast, but as most of the 2020s haven't actually happened yet, this is sadly not possible. I think um, what you say about streaming is so valid because I've been streaming these tunes. That's the, my first go-to. And then I go and watch the videos on YouTube. And I don't think YouTube plays count, but I'm not sure about chat rules. Oh, Nick, do you know that? Do YouTube streams count? Uh, yes, YouTube does, oh, I think, yeah. But no matter how infinitesimal our input is from that, we're contributing to the charts by listening to tunes. I'm going, I've never heard that, so I'd better listen to it. Uh, whereas tunes, for example, that I love and know inside out, I won't have streamed as many times because I don't need to go. How much do I like Earth, Wind & Fire, September? I know how much I like it. Whereas Raksu, I'll probably listen to that four times before I decided I couldn't take it anymore. And when speaking of um, YouTube, actually, it's worth pointing out that my YouTube algorithm's completely screwed from this experiment that we're doing. But the other day, two artists who we have really destroyed, Halsey and G-Eazy, who we know are connected, that's finally connected the dots between, oh, you're listening to that, you might like this song, and their duet that was their declaration of love that led on to all the train wreck stuff that happened later came on. And that is actually much better than the Jeezy with, um, say, Grace and Halsey's terrible breakup tune. I mean, I don't know that it's going to make me completely rethink my opinion of either of them, but that was actually something to that song. She sounds vocally a lot better uh, and he comes across as less of a douche as well. Just a couple of notes on the charts. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, The Killer's Mr. Brightside this week spent its 354th week in the top 100, right? That is 10 years it has been in the top 100 charts in this country, which is clearly nonsense, isn't it? That would make it the biggest selling song in the history of music by some distance, wouldn't it, if you had to buy it? I think your point about the singles is absolutely right. The album charts is even worse. Oh, God, yeah. Because if you go to the album charts, it is about 85% of the album charts are greatest hits packages because for an album to appear in the album charts, three of its songs have to have been streamed. So 
the reason that Queen's Greatest Hits is in the top 20 and ABBA gold is because it only takes a lot of people listening to Dancing Queen, Gimme, 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 Baby Rhapsody, whatever, to get the record into the album charts. So sales of albums, an album goes in at number one because the artist has mastered pre-sale campaign. It goes in at number one. The second week's at 67, and then it disappears out of the charts, whereas the entire album chart, if you have a look at it, is essentially just greatest hits mm. collections of people streaming popular stuff on playlists. It is only a, a personal opinion. I'm not a fan of streaming anyway, primarily because the money doesn't go to the artist or very, very little goes to the artist. Uh, I think there's so much more commitment when you buy a song. You know, if you like a song enough to buy it, physically parting with your money that is a choice and a commitment as opposed to i'll just click or i'll just say alexa play and i think for the artist the change of the rules wasn't a great thing because yeah i you've streamed it a million times have you you know you've given them three pence you've bought it once you've given them at least 79 pence or once it's gone through the trickle down and everybody all the middlemen you've probably only given them five pence but it's still better than streaming it a million times you know what i mean buy cds and lps kids i've also noticed a difference because now i'm djing and I, I track the official singles chart but i also track the itunes download chart and there's often a disparity between what's selling on download and what's in the charts that are more based on streaming there's been a couple of examples recently it's a song by pink never not gonna dance again and there was joel corey's uh, lionheart massive on itunes minor hits in the real chart conversely pink panther s boys a liar massive in the official charts barely sold much on downloads it's all very confusing. Let's move on. In fifth position, also with four points, but finishing ahead of the 2010s on the tiebreak rule, we have... The Noughties! The Noughties is the only decade that has not produced a winner, and it had three losers. That was Jerry Halliwell, The Saturdays, and Westlife. I think if you'd sat me down at the beginning and you'd said predict the decade that would come last, I think I would have got it wrong because I think I would have said the noughties. What we covered over the 10 episodes is in my book, some great pop. We've had Madonna and Girls Aloud and Alicia Keys and stuff. But we've also had the waste end of pop with Jerry Halliwell, Olive Phillips, The Saturdays and that sort of thing. So it's quite a weird decade to muster. I have a theory about the 2000s and why perhaps the music from it isn't as loved. And it's about the transitive nature of the charts. We're going to talk about the charts again. So in the 2000s, what often would happen, and I think it was the case with the Westlife song we talked about, straight in at number one, one week at number one, down the charts it topples because you knew that the Westlife single was coming out in three weeks' time or in four weeks' time. You got an advance release date. You knew when it was coming. Everybody went and bought it on day one. It goes in high and then trickles down. There were very few climbers, if you like. And I was looking at the stats today. So in the 2000s in the UK, there were 273 number one records in the decade. If you look at the 90s, there were 206. If you go back to the 60s, there was 186. So 50% more number one records in the 2000s than in the 60s. And what that means is, I don't think there were as many of those really big, long-running hits or, or hits that stuck around that you would remember. You know, if something was in the charts in the 60s, the chances are it was in the charts for 10, 12, 15 weeks, even if it had only scraped into the top 10. Whereas in the 2000s, if it got to number one, it might still have been in the chart four weeks, five weeks, something like that. So stuff came and went much more quickly. And I think what that means is, is that it's very easy to have blink and missed a lot of stuff that happened. So I think where the 2000s struggled for me is that we never really got to an established, well-recognized hit that your average person on the street would know. Whereas I think we we do have those in the other decades because of the way that the charts operated. It could be rubbish that, but that is my theory as to why stuff just wasn't well known enough for people to identify with it, I guess. I guess with what Nick's saying there, pop music's a production line. And one of the things that I have noticed as we go through the decades, it's weird because we're doing it in reverse at the moment because of how they've placed. You can notice certain moments, you know, the quality improves, things like production improve, obviously, because it's time, science and stuff like that. But surely the fact that 
it's a production line now and it's in full swing and it's just right this isn't working move on to the next one next 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 that's just part of the machine of pop and there's more artists being thrust down our throat constantly these guys are a big deal now but in a week's time forget them because we're on to the next one you know we have tv programs all the time and it feels like every month as the new reality TV programmer who's telling us who's going to be the next big pop stars. And so I think that's kind of got to be taken into effect as well. I don't know how you would do that. It would involve a lot of chicanery and formulas, but um, it was something that I've noticed as we go through the decades where pop music starts to get a bit into the swing of how to make a pop star. In the noughties, I found it was swings and roundabouts, really. There were three utterly beige moments Something that I think we could start referring to as the Saturday effect songs that I just can't remember how they go. And I think I'm glad that I can't remember. Jerry Halliwell slid into that zone. And I do absolutely have a sweet spot for Holly Valance. I can't remember the song. But then Girls Aloud come along and totally subvert my thoughts on really mainstream pop in kind of one song with an absolutely brilliant tune. Alicia Keys has made a masterpiece. And like maybe with the boys in Westlife Oasis and Justin, they're treading water a little bit with those particular songs, with the exception of Justin's appalling video, the music still sounds decent. So consequently, the noughties come out in the uh, plus columns. There were some beige moments that got the minus twos, but there were enough cracking tunes and then enough good ones to yeah carry the noughties into a plus. Definitely outperformed uh, the 2010s for me as well. I've been thinking about the range of genres that we've had over these 60 tunes as a whole. And I think one genre has been ill-served so far just by virtue of the randomizer, and that's hip-hop. And really, the only proper hip-hop track that we've got here is Ice Cube from the noughties. So I don't think that hip-hop has yet had a fair shake of the dice. I will say in the first episode of season two, that will change. As for the 2000s, I was interested to hear what Nick was saying about the churn off the charts, making each hit less memorable because it hung around for less time. I agree up to a point, but I think actually there was another major mid-decade shift in the way that the charts were compiled. And that was in April 2005, where download sales were introduced for the first time. And really, at that point, within a matter of a few weeks, CD singles, which had been the previously dominant format, they just disappeared from the shelves completely. Now, what happened there is you can visually market a CD single in a store. You haven't got as much marketing power with a download. And what happened was pretty quickly, it slowed the chart right down from that frantic pace, which I think it has had since the mid nineties actually. And it reintroduced the concept of tracks actually climbing the charts over a number of weeks. So fewer hyped up fake hits, more bona fide real hits, but I don't remember any of that having any impact on the types of music which charted. In fact, I don't have much memory of how late 2000s pop sounded at all. It's a very different story with the early 2000s in terms of the 20-year revival rule, which didn't really happen with the 90s, and it's taken them 30 years to be revived, really. But the early 2000s are back, back, back. And I know exactly what they sounded like. I've always known exactly what they sounded like. There's been a lot of excitement about the S Club 7 reunion tour. Sophie Ellis-Bexter, she's a national treasure. Blue singles, a floor fillers, busted, have just announced today that they're getting back together again. But when do you ever hear people talking about the sound of the late 2000s? Oh, that's got a really late 2000s sound to it. It's all the weirder because in the second half of the 2000s, I became a freelance music writer, living the dream at last. And I was actually reviewing new singles on a regular basis every week, in fact. I still can't remember anything about that period at all. It's weird. There were 113 number ones in the first half of the 2000s and 120 in the second half. So I don't mean to factually debunk your theory Ooh. there, but <laughs> there were actually more in the second half than the first. So Would the late naughty sound be when hip-hop had more or less completely fallen by the wayside and been replaced with the R&B pop 
aspect of things uh so the ushers even like replacing people like 50 cent and things like that and the late noughties would that be when they were doing stuff that was almost dance music from 2009 i would agree i think 2009 there was a major shift i loved 2009 and i've got a very clear idea of what 2009 pop sounds like but five six seven eight not so much it was weird it was a weird place to be a smattering of number ones from that period elvis mcfly u2 peter k james blunt uh the sugar babes the arctic monkeys nisloppy chico shakira scissor sisters my chemical romance take that proclaimers kaiser chiefs mika leona lewis sean kingston all sorts of stuff there's no defining sound is there no defining sound at all interesting on to our next decade this decade had been in the top three all the way through to the final episode at which point it dropped to fourth position with nine points step forward Wow. This was our most divisive decade. It produced three winners, Rocksteady Crew, Nick Kershaw, Sophia George, but it also produced three losers, Brother Beyond, Mel Smith and Kim Wilde, and latterly Modern Romance. So I found by this stage that pop music was starting to come of age. I think they'd worked out how to do it. Pop music changed, music changed in the 60s with the Beatles and suddenly there was this thing called pop and, oh, Christ, what are we doing with this? But by the 80s, I think, you know, the guys behind it had started to suss it out. There were certainly more than one or two songs that really here are just silly marketing, which is kind of pop music summed up. And I love that. You know, pop music can change your life and alter your mood, but it, it doesn't necessarily need to do that forever. And like for me, a three and a half minute bump from a slightly daft record, sometimes that's all you need to get through a difficult day. You know, yeah, it's brilliant to, you know, have a, an album by Radiohead change your life forever. But sometimes, you know, you've been stuck in traffic and it's just all a bit crap. Uh, and tunes like Nelly the Elephant or The Lion Sleeps Tonight just maybe make you smile and make you nod for head and, and that's done. Over the first 10 episodes, we've not had much in the way of deeply intellectually challenging stuff. For example, Radiohead or Pink Floyd and things like that. And that kind of music does improve my life immeasurably. If someone like Nick Kershaw can come along with three and a half minutes of just nonsense lyric, he said that that's what they are, over a really simple catchy hug. I'd never turned my nose up at that, and so I, I was surprised how poorly the 80s have performed there. It came out plus three points for me. Brother Beyond was the only one that I couldn't tell you how that goes. And yeah, there's one song that I think is actively bad, the Mel and Kim thing, but even though I think it's actively bad, I still probably play that sometimes because, yeah, it's daft as well. So I think a strong decade, really. I'm surprised. Nick, I guess you're probably not too happy with the 1980s coming in fourth. Well, it is what it is. I actually genuinely think it would have won until the last three weeks. Kenny Rogers, tight fit, modern romance have absolutely done for it. I think up until that point, if you carried on in the same arc with the same sorts of things as we were talking about, I don't think there would have been any question that it would have won. What I think is interesting is that we've managed to do 10 songs from the 80s, you know, generally regarded as a high point in the history of music without actually landing on a big star. We've swerved almost all of what you would call the 80s big acts. I think I was having a look through. Nick Kershaw is probably the biggest star of any of the bands and artists we talked about. We've got nowhere near Madonna, Prince, even OMD, Human League, Bucks Fizz had three number ones, didn't they? So we've got nowhere near what you would call the defining artists of the decade. We've sort of faffed about at the periphery a little bit with, you know, the Rocksteady crew and Brother Beyond and Nelly the Elephant, Holly Johnson, people like that. So I think that's perhaps not a surprise that it's done as poorly as it has done when we have not really had what you would think was a fair representation of the quality he says, with five of the songs from the 80s of the 10 episodes having his top boat. So, you know. <laughs> I did notice that. Make of that what you will. So, <laughs> I like a load of old cobblers, I think, is what we learned from that. Yeah. It, it does surprise me that the 80s have come in fourth. I think they've taken over now, finally, from the 70s, as everyone's 
go-to universal consensus classic decade. No matter what age you're playing to, you can't go wrong. They put on a bit of 80s. It's kind of the unifying decade. If in my personal terms, it was a decade I was in my 20s for most of the 80s. I was a student. I managed to eke out being a student from 1980 all the way through to 1985. So pop music was my soundtrack. I've been a child in the 70s. I was a young adult in the 80s. I was going out. This is the decade I started clubbing, discovered I really loved clubbing. In the second half of the decade, I started DJing. I've got a lot of affection for it. I think Nick's absolutely right. It's had a really unlucky shake of the dice. I don't think we can rule it out from a future success in further seasons. Keep listening, everyone. Champion the underdog. I mean, what are the chances of you getting two African savannah animals in, like, 10 80s hits with an elephant and a lion. It's weird. I would say with when you sort of look at the list of the tracks and you go songs that sound like the decade, you know, love it or loathe it. I think modern romance, if you heard that and played it to someone who'd never heard it before, what decade's that from? If they've got a knowledge of music, they're going to absolutely nail it. It'd be from the 80s. Nick Kershaw couldn't be more 80s. Tight fit, fairly obviously 80s. And the Holly Johnson one is fairly obviously 80s. Kenny Rogers would be, that could have been in any decade, couldn't it? That could have, that could have been in the 1880s, in fairness. But <laughs> I hate you, the rock steady crew as well. You'd kind of go, maybe, maybe 70s, but generally you go, yeah, that's pretty. No. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> there wasn't no electro funk in the late 70s at all. That was, that was pure 1983 that record could only have come out in 1983 in my but i can come up with one electro funk from 1979 donna but... summers i feel love doesn't count let's leave that for another day all right <laughs> so let's go into the top three then in third position with 10 points it is the 70s 1970s only had one winner that was Earth, Wind and Fire, September. But it also had no losers at all. And I think that's what's lifted it ahead of the 80s. In contrast to what we were just saying about the 80s, I felt that we got quite a good representation of the 70s on the whole from what we did. There was a bit of glam, a bit of soul, a bit of disco, some pop, a terrible standing in front of the shutters ballad. So we did get a little bit of everything, certainly from my perspective. What saved it, I think, that there was nothing hideous. I mean, I know the Jimmy Helms terrible lyrics aside, and we'll no doubt come to that momentarily. But actually, I was just looking at my votes here. Almost every week it was in the mess zone for me. So almost every single week it was sort of just fine. I don't really want to hear it again, but it is fine. I think when it's good, it's very good. The Edison Lighthouse, even the Chicory Tip, I know he didn't do all that well, but I think that's a great pop record. So I think when it was good, it was good. But I think there was enough of it and enough variety that actually it was pretty acceptable fare. Uh, I only found two of these tunes to be classics and there's no prog and there's not much disco that's sort of come up. And those would be kind of my personal favourite styles from the 70s and beyond. And whilst by far... By far, by far, by far, my least favourite tune came up uh, in this decade. It's the ones that I can't remember that kind of did for the 70s for me. It's the worst performing decade for me by quite a way, minus six I got it on. I kind of feel it's because pop as a consumer product was starting to prevail, but I don't think they quite nailed it yet. There's only a couple of sort of out and out pop songs that, you know, really sort of click. And then I think there's a lot that I just think need the filter of time and kind of the right to be forgotten. And the fact that I can't remember which particular songs I'm speaking about kind of speaks to what I'm saying there. They're they're just songs that you just go, ah, yeah, whatever. I don't want to hear that one again. I think Earth, Wind and Fire is splendid. And I think that was where pop was getting it right. Maybe the Slade song didn't really get what it was trying to do the darts was it they're just oh we, we're trying to be pop but we don't quite know how to go about it yet and as i said with the 80s i think by the 80s they'd started to suss it out 70s still working out the pop beast formative decade for me the 70s i was aware of pop music from before the 70s but this is where my love of pop music really crystallized and intensified 
1971, my parents gave me a transistor radio and I was off. I immediately found Radio 1 on the medium wave dial. Later, I found Radio Luxembourg as well. Did the classic, listening to it under the covers when I was supposed to be asleep thing. And from summer 71, I started properly following the charts every week, paying attention. I bought my first single in 1971. I bought my first LP in 1973. I went to my first gig in 1977 a lot of affection for these tunes they cut very deep there are five out of these ten that i really 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 like that would be slade rnj stone earth wind and fire edison lighthouse and chicory tip and yet when it comes to the voting september one yeah great that's not, not a big surprise but two songs finished second with our voters one of the Edison lighthouse but the other one was elvis presley's my boy and if you'd asked me to name 500 great singles from the 70s, it would never have occurred to me to mention My Boy by Elvis Presley. But sometimes you just get stuck with a bad week and you have to vote for least worst. I agree, disco, light hip-hop, has had a poor shake of the dice. September Earth, Wind & Fire gets lumped in as disco. It's not really. It's more like up-tempo funk. And Earth, Wind & Fire transcend genres anyway. It's an Earth, Wind & Fire record. We haven't really had any punk new wave. Well, I've had darts, but I recognise about on my own with that one. Um, perhaps not quite such a surprise with Punk and New Wave, because not as much of it made the top ten as you might think. All right. Jumping up into second position at the last possible moment in this season, with 11 points, making it our dark horse of season one. Lo and behold, it's... The 1990s had two winners, Sinead O'Connor and Snow, and one loser, which was Zig and Zag. So it definitely starts to get about personal choice in the 90s. Music is subjective, and I've tried as much as I can to cut that out of when I'm reviewing tunes and saying what I think, but it's also kind of impossible to do that. I only got Sinead O'Connor down as an out-and-out classic from this decade, and I don't particularly like that tune myself, but there were loads of good tunes that we've had pop up that are just good postcards of the time. And whilst they might not echo down the ages, they do give you that nice bit of nostalgia. And a lot of the time, that's what you're looking for from old music, just to be reminded of the time. It doesn't have to be the greatest piece of songwriting you've ever heard. It just reminds you where you were, what you were doing, who you were trying to snog whatever and the 90s that's got a lot of that for me there are less forgettable tunes than there were in any other decade and it's only the share song that stopped it being a clean sheet which i think it's a bit harsh on share but i couldn't tell you how that song goes now and i don't want to the 90s for me came out as the strongest of the decades which i think is interesting because none of the tunes actually get into my top three but there's very little that i find completely pointless i think it was all well made. Again, the pop music coming of age by the 90s, they were getting it right. And to underline that, the way that they were getting pop music right is that thing where it can be a song that's not brilliant, but it's well made and it's the right time and it's the right place. And it does that thing, as I keep saying, the postcard of the time. Then that gives you the nostalgia feels. Not the best songs in the world, but all the nostalgia. So, yeah, good times, the 90s. Nick, I remember you saying before that you went from loving pop in 1989 to hating pop in 1990. How did that play out later? Well, it's really interesting. This is what I love about this discussion. The 90s was by some distance my least favourite of this season. Never got a top vote. Mostly didn't like any of it, which is weird, actually. I'm slightly surprised it's done as well as it has. But... The first time I went to an 80s night was in 1992. I don't think I've been to a 90s night ever. And I think that was perhaps my point of it. It's like it would be a weird night if you hosted a 90s night and played The Real McCoy, Janet Jackson, that song that ended up being the theme to The One Show, Brian Adams and Shakespeare's sister and Zig and Zag, right? That's a weird night, isn't it? <laughs> you just described <laughs> like 50% of my Saturday night. <laughs> I've just described Trev's job. Right, okay. okay. Yeah, I was thinking, what's wrong with that? Okay, well, maybe, all right, obviously just me then. But Can you give um, it a name? Because I'm writing this down for a flyer. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, 
so yeah so um it never got a top vote for me there was nothing in there that i loved um i think when it did get votes it was sort of a third place because it was a bad week and there was worse things than it you know i think mariah carey got a vote the younger version of me would be horrified that i was awarding mariah carey something but then there we are so i'm surprised overall i think we're all surprised actually because the 1990s were struggling for most of season one but they had a late surge so the last four 90s songs we had a second place a first place a third place and another first place which is what accounted for the sudden rise in its fortunes but it did all right with the voters of the 10 songs six of them finished in the top three in the voting for that episode there are three songs out of this 60 that have really grown on me that I didn't say anything very nice about during the episode, but I've come to really like with repeated play. So from the 2010s, Say Grace and G-Easy, that's grown on me. From the 2000s, Westlife, World of Our Own, my biggest grower of all of them is from the 1990s. And that shares one by one, which I had nothing good to say about at the time. I thought it was totally forgettable. It's completely stuck in my head. It gives me Huge amounts of pleasure to listen to that song now. Weird. I thought you were about to say you're now the world's biggest Zig and Zag fan. (laughs) (laughs) The big change in the charts in the 1990s, I think, it wasn't an overnight change like when downloads came in and then when streaming came in. The changes when CD singles eventually overtook vinyl singles. I started buying CD singles exclusively round about from summer 1992 onwards. Now, the thing about CD singles was much more chance to market them. You couldn't really do so much prominent racking of seven-inch singles and 12-inch singles and in racks. You had to flip through the racks and they were all kind of hidden from view. With CD singles, you could make these lovely big display boards and the moment you walked into HNV, you had to do priority releases screaming at you literally as you walk through the doors and it's like that's everyone's buying that one you've got to get that one it's it's only 99p this week so get it now and it caught me out a few times the first time i ever noticed it was walking into hmv on a monday and there was a full display rack of dreams by gabrielle i must have been away or something that week i wasn't listening to radio one because it's like who is gabrielle what is dreams why is this the one everyone's got to buy it was odd And it changed the charts in the way that Nick described as pertaining to the 2000s. But I think this actually started halfway through the 1990s. I have a reason to think this. I've got an old friend who's even more of a charts anorak than I am. And he rang me in February 1994 in a state of some distress and needing a place to vent. He said, do you know? what the highest climber is in this week's top 40. This was the 13th of February, 1994. He said it's Linger by the Cranberries, which has gone up two places. And he said passionately, he said, I hate what has happened to the charts. So I think it started happening then. That's when climbers basically ceased to be a thing. There was a few climbers after that, but not much. There's another big shift that happened which I think affected the charts a great deal. And actually, people don't talk about this quite as much as perhaps they should when they write the history books. It's Matthew Bannister taking over at Radio 1. Because Matthew Bannister took over Radio 1. He fired the old guard, smashy and nicey brigade, brought in all these cool new hip DJs. Radio 1 suddenly became actually cool to listen to. And all of a sudden, Britpop happened. Definitely a connection. But by the end of the decade, the wheel had turned again. And then you got pure pop coming back in, very much riding on the coattails of the Spice Girls. I think they opened the door to that. Plus, Britpop had just got pinging awful and run out of steam. So, yeah, well done, the 1990s. We did not see that coming. Every time in that spill, you kept saying, and there was one thing that people forget to mention in the history of chart music, and I'm going, in in the 90s, surely, it's the single the cassette single and that, that just never came up i'm like like there are legions of single fans at home who've still <laughs> got them all like going when's our shout like single boys i've got you and girls yeah absolutely the single crew the the forgotten gem uh, 12 inch 7 inch single i did have a few singles 
1980, Bow Wow Wow had a single only release. In 1980? Yeah, it's called Your Cassette Pet. It was a six-track EP that made the singles chart. Shut my mouth then, because I, th- I thought singles only came in in like 1987. Yeah. Simply because I'm trying to think of the two that I bought, and they must have been post that, and I can't think why. Like, why the hell I bought a single? Seven Inch was my thing. Wasted a lot of money on those things that get really, really difficult to mix with. The uh, exception to your there was no climbers in the early 90s is famously Celine Dion's Think Twice. So Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud we talked about in one of the earlier episodes, I think holds the record for the longest climb to number one. Yes. And it took the record from Think Twice, which I think took 15 weeks, I want to say, in the top 40 before it reached the top of the charts in 1994. It was three weeks at number two before it climbed to number one. Cotton Eye Joe kept it off the top. I think more statistical granular drilling down is required to settle (laughs) this issue. All right. This just leaves our winning decade with 12 points. It is... The 60s. So half of the 1960s songs finish in either first or second place. And that's a better result than any other decade. And none of the 1960s songs finished last. For the record, the two winning songs for the 60s were Jimi Hendrix's Experience All Along the Watchtower and Gene Pitney's Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart. I think that says it all for me in everything that you've said there is that it has just been consistently fine. And I don't know whether the sorts of stuff that we have been listening to has just been fine. I was just looking at my voting and the 60s came third for me almost every week. (laughs) It was the third best song. And that's because there was one or two songs that I really liked. A lot of stuff that I didn't like. And it was quite easy to retreat to the comfort of Freddie and the Dreamers or the Rockin' Berries or, you know, something like that. Because it was inoffensive and fine rather than good or bad or terrible. Only got minus one for me once, and that was in a week where it was a very good week and it just the Manfred Mann thing just happened to be the worst of a bunch of six records. But every other time, it was sort of second or third pretty much all the way through. And I think it's just because there's been some terrible alternatives and the stuff that we have picked has been so inoffensive and okay that it has averaged, and this is the whole point of it, isn't it? It has averaged over the course of the 10 weeks and sort of risen to the top on that basis, despite not having very many what you would call kind of standout classic 60s moments. I was determined for the 60s not to win this because I think the easiest outcome of this entire thing is for everybody just to go, well, of course, the 60s is the best decade. And in some ways, I gutted that it has won this season because... I don't even think that the songs in these 10 episodes have been that fantastic. You know, we've not had the Beatles or the Stones or, you know, perhaps the most critically loved one of them all is the Jimi Hendrix one. But we've still not scratched the surface of what you would call the good stuff from the 60s. So if if in the next 10 episodes we suddenly rack up the Beatles and the Kinks and the Stones and all that sort of thing, it's going to waltz to victory if it can win with Freddie and the Dreamers and... Manfred Mann and Anthony Newley, for God's sake. So, you know, well done, Paul. Well done, Paula. Um, You know, to say that it's not had any of the big guns. It has got Elvis Presley and Gene Pitney. Maybe he's not a massive gun, but you've got Frankie Valli in there and Jimi Hendrix. I think you've got four fairly strong contenders, but I also see what you're saying. It's still not scratched the surface of it. One of the things I keep coming back to with this, do we call it a project? Is this a project? is that everything sort of comes out in the wash. So I think because Radio 1 plays a broad swathe of new music that hasn't been already filtered by audience reaction, whilst Radio 2 plays songs that have mainly proved to be popular, it seems that Radio 2 plays more good records. Or rather, because music's subjective, it's records that the public have largely decided are good. And now I think because of science, when we've got this random number select, we've got no filter. So you end up with this wonderful yet bizarre cross section of stuff. And in the 60s, I thought there were like five totally forgettable tunes, really, that wiped out four tunes that I would have said really were classics when it came to my score. And I actually ended up scoring the 60s as minus two. But I think my point is that the 60s had some awesome songs, Hendrix, 
Pitney, Four Seasons, Elvis. But it's only with time's filter that you think the 60s were great. There was there's an awful lot of stuff that wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. But it is that time's filter. What do you remember from the 60s? And I would imagine most people would, out of the artists that we had, probably only name four or five of them when you were thinking of 60s music. One of the things that I really do think the 60s has absolutely benefited from is, broadly speaking, there is a 60s sound to all of the music. I think the only one that you'd kind of go that sounds from outside the 60s is probably Hendrix. The rest of them you can kind of catalogue as the 60s. So that plays into that that nostalgia feel. Every time we've talked about the 60s, even with the songs that I've not liked, I have found myself going, oh, I, I wish I'd been alive in the 60s because it sounds so hopeful and optimistic and cheerful. And so, again, I think that's one of the things that has benefited the 60s in the voting. It's not I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's right. I just think it is that, oh, doesn't it sound lovely side of things, which I think is, that's what we're here to try and prove. Is that what's going to win it in the end? I guess we'll find out over, you know, the next 10 years or however long we do this thing for. (laughs) Until we admit the 2020s and they just stomp all over everything. (laughs) Yeah, I've just been looking very carefully through the 60s selection. They kind of divide into three for me. The final three that we did all come from that pre-Beatles era, before the Beatles changed everything. And I thought right from the beginning of this experiment that the 60s would run aground because of those first four years, 1960 to 1963. Okay, the Beatles started happening in 1963, but the charts didn't fully take that on board into 64. So you've got those four iffy years and you've got six classic years. So, yeah, like Nick, I'm surprised they did so well considering what they were given. So we've got the three pre-Beatles tunes from the Iffy years, Anthony Newley, Elvis Presley, although that did actually did very well, Paul and Paula. Then you've got three kind of journeyman worker tame Mersey Beat tracks, I think. The Searchers, The Rocking Berries, Freddie and the Dreamers. Then you've actually got three, what a lot of people would call bona fide, solid gold 60s classics. That'll be Jimi Hendrix, Gene Pitney and uh, The Four Seasons. And then you've got Manfred Mann, which is like the forgettable outlier. Definitely the most forgettable of all of those, I think. Trev often says that he wishes he was alive in the 60s. Well, I was alive for most of the 60s. I was born in 62. I was about as old as the Beatles chart career. I was aware of pop music from early 1966 onwards, just before I turned four years old. And because I was around, but I experienced pop music from afar just as a child, I I find it very easy to mythologise that era. For me, pop music was this dream. It was this colourful fantasy world of beautiful people in amazing clothes and zany characters that got to act like children, even when they were grown men. Yeah, I I guess there were things I hadn't quite realised at that point. But I longed, I longed to be one of the beautiful people and strut down Carnaby Street in the peacock finery and hang out with the hippies and all of that. Ended up hanging out with the new romantics, but they were colourful as well. So yeah, well done, the 60s. But I hope that the 60s aren't going to be a slam dunk for time immemorial. I think we've all been doing our calculations on what were our most favourite and least favourite decades. Using my own methodology, I've discovered that all six decades are either favourite or least favourite of all three of us, if you see what I mean. We actually cover all bases. So according to my calculations, Nick's favourite decade was the 80s, Kel Surprise, least favourite the 1990s. Trev's favourite decade was the 2000s. His least favourite were the 1970s. My favourite decade was the 2010s, which I find bizarre, and least favourite 1960s. So um, <laughs> it's just a complete reversal of popular <laughs> taste. What a contrarian that makes me. Before we sign off on season one, I'd like to have everyone's top three and most bad and hated from the entire season. I'll start with you, Nick, if I may. Okay, so most bad and hated is a difficult one. There's nothing that I actually... I mean, I know that I went on a bit of a Raksu rant back in the day and all that sort of thing, but I think the song that I would gleefully never hear again is Justin Timberlake's Crimea River. I just hate that. Top three, in no particular order, I would go for Blank Space, Taylor Swift, The Riddle, and... 
Holly Johnson's love train because, as I've said, it was so nice to be reacquainted with that. I've had immense fun over the last three or four weeks with that back in my life. Trev, what are your choices? Mate, you and Offer Cat refused by easiest worst choice ever. Honourable mentions to Brian Mel C and Tight Fit and the Toy Dolls. I think they're really, really good. They just missed out on the top three. Third place, Nick Kershaw, which I think is a, an excellent song. Second place, Earth, Wind & Fire, September. I, I found it really easy to do the top three. Got ye in first place by quite some distance, if I'm honest. Interesting. There's not a lot of overlap here at all. It's always difficult to pick a definitive top three of favourites because... It changes all the time, and next week it could be three completely different records. I found myself enjoying a lot more of these on replay than I thought I would when I was preparing the episodes for broadcast. I didn't enjoy them to the same degree. I think as I've got context for them now, I remember all the fun that we've had talking about them and <laughs> laughing about them. And yeah, I've got context now. Most bad and hated nearly went to Mel and Kim, but it didn't because I think Kim Wilde just about redeems it just by being her lovely self. So my most bad and hated goes to the one that absolutely sent me running for the skip button. I found myself thinking, I cannot listen to this trash another second. And that honour falls to Them Girls, Them Girls by Zig and Zach. Top three... I have put them in order. Number three is September by Earth, Wind and Fire. Lifetime favourite. But I'm kind of going a little bit on the impact I'm getting for them as of now. And I've played September so many times over. It just drops back a couple of places. Second place, together again, Janet Jackson. Big, big rediscovery. Didn't really understand the context for the song then, what it was all about. Now I do. It makes it all the more beautiful. Really moves me, that song. Number one. Like the big old boomer that I am, my number one's Jimi Hendrix experience all along the Watchtower. I'm not much of a classic rock guy, but this is as classic as rock gets, I think. Poor Union J. <laughs> the Union J massive will be all over us again. Oh, the tweets will get, Mike, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> we had one tweet, the one remaining Union J fan on Twitter. Who I think, uh, I'm pretty sure you called them Union Jack at one point, which, you know, may, maybe that's what they were. I don't know. Oh, God. Well, folks, that really is a wrap on season one. We will be back before too long. We're not going to take massive long gap. We're going to crack on with season two fairly quickly. I will say season two, episode one, I think is fantastic. I don't know what these guys are going to think. I don't know what you guys are going to think. I can't wait for season two, <laughs> episode one. And on that optimistic note, it's goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. Goodbye from Trev. Ta-da. And goodbye from me. Bye-bye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?